0: Okay, before we get uh, to this portion of scripture, I'm going to tell you a very, very short story, and uh, it's possibly—I'm trying to work it out—it's possibly a story that I may have already told you at some stage in the past. I think it's a good story, so I'm going to roll with it. I'm going to take you back to France in the 1700s. So we're all there. We're all in France in the 1700s. So in the sorry, 17th century, 1600s. That's it. Yeah, 1600s. In the 1600s in France, um, a decision was made by the reformed churches of the time to alter the seating arrangements in their churches. So you've got to understand this, that up until this point, it was expected that people in France, in reformed churches, would be seated in church according to the position they held in society. So the higher the position you held in the community the nearer you sat to the pulpit. This is how it worked. So maybe the politicians would be up here. Possibly not. But maybe the politicians, lawyers and so forth up here. And the poorest of peasants would be right at the back of the church. That's how it used to work in France in reformed churches. Around 1630, 1640... Uh, this changed our church has decided right we're going to do away with this system and we're going to allow people in church to sit anywhere they want to sit how does that sound to us sounds pretty fair doesn't it sounds pretty straightforward this led to absolute chaos in france Uh, in a place called castra i was reading about it this week There was such an outcry about this new idea that you could sit anywhere you wanted in church that people started nailing signs to their preferred seat in church. There was more than one record of a punch-up in church over this seating arrangement change. Lawsuits were filed and, the worst of the lot, Catherine, listen up, there was even an account of a poor pastor's wife being attacked by a mother and daughter tag team over the issue. Okay, chaos. What do we think when we hear this sort of stuff? We think, okay, what do we think? We think it's terrible, do we? Isn't there a tiny little voice in our heads that goes, ah, the church. We hear about that sort of chaos and anger, and we do think, ah, typical Christians in a sense, don't we? There's this little voice that reminds us that we're the same, aren't we? In our congregation so often we squabble and we bicker about the most inconsequential things. Well this morning I ask you if you're a Christian here, what do you know about God? You know that God desires, not that we squabble and we bicker, but God desires that we love and have unity in his church. So this is the matter this morning. This is the matter at hand. How do we have that unity? Like really, how, uh, you know, some are visiting this morning, are you? In your church or at London City Presbyterian Church, how do we avoid bickering and friction, tension in our relationship? How do we actually have this sort of christian unity that pleases our god how does this work well i think in this section in philemon do you know what i think we're given something of an answer to this i think from 17 to the end of this chapter we are shown listen please we are shown three ways that we should better regard each other as christians three ways of understanding better the relationships in this church. And these are genuinely ways that will intensify unity and love in Christ church. So this is the first thing I want you to do. I want you to turn with me to Philemon. Would you have it open? In Philemon and from verse 17. And let's go with the first of these three views. It's this. So we should view each other. How do we think about our relationships? How do we understand each other? First thing, we should view each other emphasizing our shared work. We should view each other, understand each other, emphasizing, as we go about life, emphasizing our shared work. That's the first thing, our shared work. I'm looking around the church this morning, and I can see that uh, some of you have not been here for this very short sermon series in the book of Philemon. Some are visiting, some are coming back from, I'm sure, very relaxing and lovely holidays. So, the question, first thing we've got to deal with is what is this in front of us here? What's this? You don't hear may, maybe many sermons on Philemon. What are we dealing with? Well, this here is obviously, it's a letter. And it's a letter by the Apostle Paul. He is writing to his friends. Like, he's—it he's, he is a friend, he's a Christian friend, a guy called Philemon, and he's writing about what, or whom? He's writing about a slave called Onesimus that belonged to Philemon. Now, what, I'm sure you picked up on this, did you, as we read it out there, that Onesimus has done wrong. Like, Onesimus, I think, evidently is stolen from his master, from Philemon, I think we picked that up even from our section. He's stolen and then he's run away. But like any good story, it's got a twist in the tail, doesn't it? And so this slave Onesimus runs away and he roamed to hide. And who does he encounter in Rome? He encounters the apostle Paul. And what does Paul do? He witnesses to Onesimus the gospel and miraculously, beautifully, Onesimus comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we have in front of us here? This is Paul, he's in company with Onesimus, he's writing back to Philemon the owner, and he is interceding on Onesimus' behalf. Everyone got it? That is the letter to Philemon in eight seconds, okay? Paul writing back to Onesimus' owner, interceding on his behalf. That's the background. What are we dealing with in our section this morning, though, at the end? Well, I think we told that what we've got in front of us is the climax of this whole thing. Like this is the more, this is the apex of the letter, because if you have been here for the last couple of weeks, we've known. Great, Paul's writing on an SMS's behalf. What have we not known exactly up to this point? We don't know exactly what Paul is asking. Now we do, though, because look at verse 17. What is he? What does he want? Look at verse 17. Paul says, he gets to the crunch, he says, I Philemon, please, man, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. So is everyone in the room clear about what Paul wants? Are we? What does he want? He wants Philemon to forgive Onesimus for stealing and running away and to welcome him back. Everyone's got that, don't we? Now, here's the thing. This is what I want us to focus on. How is it that Paul regards Philemon? Look at the term in verse 17. What is their relationship? Would you look at it with me? Even the boys and girls look at it. If you consider me, what's the term he uses? To his fellow Christian. If you consider, consider me your partner. Friends, that's it. That's where I want us, that's where I want all the attention. We zero in on that word. What's the word? What is it? His partner. Let me, um, uh, turn this over to you uh, just now. See, when you hear that word um, and common usage today, what do you think of when you hear uh, just the term "partner"? <laughs> I'm a bit shaky ground with this, aren't I? A little bit, maybe. Regrettably, I'm sure you would agree with me. It's come to almost be a replacement for a marriage-type of relationship, hasn't it? A girl might say of the guy that she's living with, uh, he, right, that's my that's my partner." So we've got that usage, that type of usage. There's another way that we use partner, isn't there? Because uh, who are Ben and Jerry? Well, everyone pretending. Uh, I, eat I, Healthily, I have no idea who Ben and Jerry are. Yeah, right. You're not convincing me. Ben and Jerry are partners, business partners. Aren't they in the ice cream world? Business partners. Now, you see that, that second usage, that is how a lot of people understand what Paul is saying here. So a lot of people are thinking that Paul is viewing Onesimus, because he's a slave, as just a piece of property. Piece of property. Writing to Philemon and saying, "Uh, Philemon, if you regard me as a business partner, then let's do a deal with Onesimus. Now you can see, I hope, that's not it at all. is it? That is not it, is it? No, Paul here is doing something that he does elsewhere in Scripture. And I'm desperate for you to, I'm going to read this to you and I want you to think about it. What does it mean to be a partner? Listen to what Paul says about Titus in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He calls him a partner, then he tells us what it means. What does partner mean to Paul? He says this. Would you listen? As for Titus, he is my partner. How does he open it up? He is my partner, my fellow worker. That's it, isn't it? Isn't that what Paul is doing with Philemon here? He's writing this letter to Philemon, and he's regarding him as a colleague. He's a Christian, but he's a co-worker. He's a fellow, he's not just somebody who shares with Paul fellowship in Christ. What is he? He's somebody who shares with Paul in being called to action for Christ. He's a Christian, therefore he is a fellow worker, a colleague in the gospel. Now let me just ever so slightly change tact here. Let me put you to work, please. Would you do this, first of all? Would you look at your page? Look at Philemon. Second thing to do. Zoom out from our section to the whole of the letter. Scan the whole letter. Just look through it briefly. Scan through it. How is it that Paul speaks of Christian relationships in this letter? Like, if you've been here for the last two weeks, you'll know this. You're definitely going to agree with this, that there's so much in Philemon about you and me being part of the same family. I don't know if you scan over it. He calls Anesimus his child, doesn't he? And Paul calls himself a father. You see how it's all familial terms? He calls Philemon his brother. What do we learn? We learn that we are supposed to be a family in Christ. But this is where I'm going. I want you to hear this. Isn't it also the case that what I'm dealing with here, co-workers in Christ, is also a primary theme in this letter? Isn't it a prominent theme? Look at the beginning of the book. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. What does he say about Philemon? To Philemon, our fellow what? Worker. Then look at the very last or the second last verse. Look how he ends the letter. This is Luke and Mark and Aristarchus, what does he call them? Fellow work there's an inclusio. There's brackets in this letter. The beginning of the letter, the end of the letter, smack bang, where we are in the middle in our sections all saying the same thing. Co workers, do you see the point? What is this letter about? Friends, what is up? What does Paul want? him to do? Is it just forgive your slave? Is that all he wants? No. He wants him to forgive him, welcome him in, view him as a colleague. You are a fellow worker in Jesus. That's what this letter is about. Now we have to do something really difficult. We have to apply this. Oh, honestly, when I prepare sermons. This is what keeps me going. The fact that we know just now, don't we, that Almighty God has a message for us in this in this portion of Scripture. What is it? Well, I want to pose a question that I asked two weeks ago to the congregation. Hear it again. How do you regard the people in your church? How do you regard the people in in your church? If you're visiting, how do you regard the people in your congregation? Is it possibly true that some of us view each other as people we have to endure on a Sunday? Is that maybe part of it? Is it slightly better than that? Do we view each other as people we ought to pray for and ought to love and maybe ought to regard as as family? Is that uh, how do you view one another? Isn't what we're seeing here transformational? Is this, should it change everything? Revolution? What are we in this room? You and me and you and the person next to you. Do you know what we are? We are a workforce for Christ. Like we are co-workers. That's what we've been called to do. Serve together. Now, you maybe look at me and say, well, well, okay, that's great. We're partners in the gospel. But what does that mean practically? How does this work its way out? Well, take today as an example. Just take a Sunday as an example. If we are partners in the gospel, how does that change things? You know what it means. We wouldn't come into church late and lethargic, would we? Just come in and we're going to sit. I'm going to maybe have a quick coffee. Try to avoid certain people. And then just get out of here. Are we? No, not if we're partners in the gospel, not if we're co-workers for Christ. What happens? We arrive and we arrive eager and we arrive early. And how do we look at each other? We are part of a team. We are here to worship God, but we are here to serve. And how? We are here to serve one another, serve together. Doesn't it spill over to tomorrow and this week? I mean, if we're co-workers, if we are partners in the gospel, what do we do? We contact one another. We check up on one another. We're partners in this. We're trying to encourage each other in this task that we've been given by God to make the name of his son known in London. We're partners. Friends, surely it's obvious, surely unity would be enhanced in our churches if we would grasp what Paul is saying to Philemon. We're not just family, although praise God that we are that. We are workers and we are to work together for Christ. Partners. Emphasizing our shared work. Second thing we see here, though, is that we should view each other echoing the gospel work. So the first one was emphasizing our shared work. The second thing is echoing the gospel work. So everyone, I hope, is on board with what we're looking at here. We're trying to be honest, are we not, about our relationships in church? And we're trying to adjust these relationships to meet the biblical criteria of what God demands of us. What we hear just now at this moment in Scripture is a tap of feet. And what we witness with our eyes at this point in Scripture is shuffling of places. Because this next point is not about Paul's relationship with Philemon. They've changed places and this next point is about Paul's relationship with Onesimus. Paul, think that through. Paul's relationship with Onesimus. Now there are, I'm going to ask you again to do something. I want you to think through and to notice two elements of this. So we're ready? There's two. Here's the first one. You notice, do you, that Paul identifies with Onesimus. In fact, you could argue I'm repeating myself. We've noticed this, have we? What did Paul say in verse 17? What did he say? Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. So everyone can understand that he's... Paul is identifying with Onesimus. Receive this guy as you would receive me. Everyone's with me there. Paul's identifying with Onesimus. This is what I want you to to get, though. The condescension. (laughs) The condescension involved in that. We to think of it like this. Imagine, everyone heard of Sinclair Ferguson, have we? Imagine Sinclair Ferguson, the Scottish theologian, came through the doors just now and and took a, a, a seat down the front here. And then the door swung open again, and it was Tim Keller. And Tim Keller takes a, a seat down beside Martin down here. And then a few minutes later, the door swung open, and John Piper comes in, and he walks down front. How would we... How would we treat these men? We would give them a row for their lateness to church, obviously, we would. But we would treat these men with a certain degree of respect, do you not think? I mean, they're spiritually minded men, some of them theologians. We would, wouldn't we? And then you, you think about this, don't you? Who are we dealing with and focusing? This is the apostle Paul, excuse me. can you imagine how the people in Colossae view Paul? This is Paul. It's not just a friend. This is a spiritual Colossus, man. I mean, he's a giant. And then, think it through, what does he do? Who's he identifying with? Remember from last week? The lowest of the low. The scum of the earth. A runaway slave. Paul. Identifying with a nasimist. Do you see the humility and the condescension? So he identifies, said two things. He identifies, right? Now, you ready? Please get the second one. What does Paul do here? He offers to pay Onesimus' debt. And I wonder if the boys and girls will do this with me. You ready, boys and girls? We'll have a race. Hands up. First one to find verse 18. Adults don't have to play the game, okay? Just the children. Got one hand yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Verse 18. We've all got verse 18. What does he say? It's the crux of the matter. So he starts, it's an interesting word to start with, isn't it? Verse 18. If Onesimus has wronged you or owes you anything, I I think Paul knows fine well that he has wronged them and owes them, but he doesn't want to dredge up Bad memories for Philemon. I think that's why it's hypothetical. It's only in hypothetical in form. If he owes you. So he does. But what does he say? If this slave has wronged you or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, keep reading. Keep going into verse 19. Like, what does he then do? Picks up a biro, doesn't he? He takes a fountain pen from a secretary, his Aminousis, and Paul writes... On the page, doesn't he? And he, he write. Do you see why he's doing that? Do, do we read that and think, "Oh, that's just a nice gesture." He's trying. to get him. He's not. He's making it legally binding. Do you see that? Like he's he's making it official here. He's saying, "No matter. It doesn't matter what an owes you. Like no limit. Paul doesn't say up to this amount. No matter what he owes you, this slave, I'm I'll, I'm paying it to see you men reconciled. No matter what it is, I'm paying your debt." And friends, this is my question. This is where I'm going with this. When you see that, what does it remind you of? When you see the way that Paul is treating Onesimus here, what is it that springs to mind for you? Is this not true? That what Paul is doing with Onesimus is directly and deliberately echoing the nature of the gospel. I wonder if um, there are people here who are not professing Christians. And I'm sure if that sums you up, then you sometimes probably wonder why we gather in church Sunday by Sunday. If you're not a Christian, do you, do you, do you wonder, why do these people, like Brad, Brad announced an evening service. Are you perhaps wondering, like, why do these people come out on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening? Do you wonder that? Can I tell you, friends, it's not out of habit and it's not out of routine. It's because the Lord Jesus has done something unspeakably wonderful for us. And that's why I come to church and I ask the Christians here, if you were asked, what has Jesus done for you? What would you say? Could you not look at this? What has Christ done for us, friends? Has he not first identified with us? Isn't that it? In the greatest condescension of all time, the very Son of God in heaven has condescended to become man. And he's drawn alongside humanity. He's identified with us. And then what has he done? Has he not paid the price on our heads? Have you not done that? You understand, don't you? That all of us in here, all of us owed God a price for our salvation. And it was a price that not one of us could pay because of our sin. And what has the Lord Christ done for us? What has he done? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He has bought us with a price. What was the price? Mark 10 45. He has given his life as a ransom. For many, do you see the point I'm making? What is Paul doing in this letter? He's echoing that, identifying, offering to pay the price. He's echoing, reflecting, mirroring what has been done for him. And I I think we have to, 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 to pause, we have to think this through, because aren't we failing in this? I mean, who here would say of London City Presbyterian Church, or of your own church, that we treat each other with gospel grace. Don't we fail in in this regard? We, we absolutely do. We should be brought to contrition. We should be brought to our knees to repentance. But there's hope. So I want you to imagine this for London City Presbyterian Church. I want you to imagine that we became, over the next few months, increasingly marked by a gospel grace in the way that we treat each other do you you agree with me your minister that that would be a beautiful thing that if we in the center of london and the way that we related to each other we increasingly sought to deal with one another in the way that we have been dealt by god can you imagine can you imagine that we were loving because god has loved us (laughs) and can you imagine and this is an important one for us can you imagine that we were increasingly forgiving of each other because we have been forgiven much? Can you imagine that we served one another because we have been served by the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, I think the point for us, the challenge for us is evidently clear. Paul mirrors the gospel in the way that he treats his fellow Christians. And that's how we ought to behave. Why do we love? We love because... He first loved us. So we emphasize our shared work. We echo a gospel work. And then we're going to, I said, three ways that we should understand relationships. So this is the third one. We should also view each other expecting God's work. So we should look at each other expecting God's work. Um, Can I ask, just for clarity, my wife is in no danger whatsoever of any mother and daughter tag team's Attacking her over the seating arrangements in the church. We're okay with this. We, the sermon has penetrated that much that we know we treat each other as partners in the gospel. And we try and reflect the gospel and what God has, has done for us. The third lesson, I suppose, that we are taught by God here is equally as important, certainly equally as challenging. So I want to just give you it up front and not work to it just to give you it here we're taught that our attitude here our attitude towards one another and yeah think it through for yourself and how you view each other our attitude towards one another should be spiritually expectant and hopeful that as we serve one another in the church and we share our lives with one another what we should expect to witness is fruit. We should be hopeful in one another. We see fruit and maturity and growth and expectant hopeful attitude amongst believers in the church. How do we, how do we see that here? Well, maybe if you've got your Bible and you're, you're still with me, look at verse 21, halfway through. Paul says a great thing. I love what he says there. He says, halfway through, I know, Philemon, you're going to do even more. <laughs> you're going to do even more than I ask. And the even more, I think, most likely... <coughs> excuse me, is Paul is hoping that Philemon is going to send Onesimus back to Paul. He's not just going to forgive him. Well, he's going to send him back to help Paul. I think that's what it is. But do you notice how he begins the verse? Look at the beginning of verse 21. Look, well, look what he says to his Christian brother. He says, confident of your obedience. I think that's a stunning little phrase. Which, you understand what he's saying? He's saying, I reckon you're going to do, I believe you're going to do the right thing. Like Paul's writing to his friend and saying, I trust God so much that God is working by his Holy Spirit in your heart. I really am I am sure, I am certain that you are going to do what is right and true in the gospel. Do you see it? He's hopeful. Isn't he expecting to see fruit? Now, stick with me. Look into the next verse. Look at verse 22. He wants to see his friends. So in verse 22 he said, I'm going to I want to really want to come and see you. I want to come to Colossae. I'm missing you guys. I'm in shackles. I'm in Rome. I love to be with you. Prepare a room for me, please. I want to see you. Then look what he says at the end of the verse. I am hoping that through your prayers. So I ask you as a congregation, what does Paul assume? He assumes that that is in, is in the plural, in the plural. He assumes that that church in Colossae, all of them, are praying for him. He assumes that. He is confident that that whole church is meeting to pray for him personally, for his health, for his ministry, that he will come to them. He is, Do you understand? You see, Paul is expectant. He looks at his brothers and sisters and he expects maturity. He expects spiritual fruit. And aren't we cut to the heart by that? Because it's so different to the way that we are. Like I know this, I'm right in saying this, that some of you in this room, although we're a transient church, some of you have known each other for donkeys. (laughs) Isn't that right? Some of you in this church have known each other not just for years, but for decades. Now there's a negative consequence, I think, for that oftentimes. And it's this, that we have therefore a low opinion of one another, don't we? We? Low expectations of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the problem. Because we can remember failures. And we're good at that, don't we? And we remember how our brothers and sisters have let down the church in service or let down ourselves, let themselves down, let God down in our eyes. And so our estimation of these people goes down, our expectations go down. I am saying to you that is not how it should be in God's church. I firmly believe in the basis of this, that you and I have a responsibility to trust one another more. That we should look to each other and we should look with expectancy, anticipating to see fruit and maturity in one. And why? Not because we're great, not because we're good. Why? Because we know solidly that the Holy Spirit of God is in action in these people's hearts. There should be hope An expectancy in the church. And I will end with this. I want to end this little mini-series in the way that Paul ends his letter. So let's look at what he says. So he he does his usual. He hears the guys, Aristarchus and so forth. They greet you, they wish you well. How does he end it? How does he end it? Look at it. He says to the church, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of the Lord Christ be with you. If you are not a Christian in this room just now, hear this. The believers in here just now have exactly the same hope and wish for you. If you're not a Christian, it might shock you to know that there is a big percentage of this room just now who pray for you regularly. You might not know that. You might not want it. But there are a lot of Christians who are praying, and praying what for you in your life? That you might know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your spirit. That you might know the power of the gospel of God, the power of God, yes, to bring you close to the people in this room, but better still, that you might know the grace of God through Christ paying the debt that we owe on the cross of Calvary, that power that brings you before the almighty eternal creator God and brings you before him entirely reconciled. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we we must uh, praise you for your provision of the book of Philemon. Uh, Lord God, in a a sense, it is a short book, uh, but there is so much in it that challenges our hearts. Lord, we especially see in this book two things. We see our need to repent of our hardness towards our fellow believers. Help us, O God to do that but we secondly see in this letter what has been done for us by jesus and we thank you that through his identification with humanity with his paying the price that we owe as his church that we like philemon and esmus can be reconciled but we can be reconciled those sinners to a holy god And so we worship you and we praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.